are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys Podcast. This is Mark Ballow, and I'm here as always with my co-host Tom Coyne. Uh, we're bringing you episode number three today, and this was a really good uh, good one. We had special guest uh, from a legendary 70s band, hard rock band, Legs Diamond. We've got the original guitar player, uh, Roger Romeo. So this was a real good interview. We, uh, we basically covered the whole history of the band right from their 1977 debut album uh, all the way up through today. Uh, the band has uh, got a new singer in 2018 and are working on some new material. So hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, we'll get some new music from Legs Diamond. But until then, uh, let's get right into the interview and uh, we hope you guys enjoy this one. Hey everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. Uh, welcome, and uh, we're going to get into our, our new interview right now with uh, Roger Romeo from the band Legs Diamond. Well, this is something that, uh, actually the first band that I wanted to do in, in terms of an interview, I was very happy that Roger was accepting to do it, and uh, the honor is, believe me, all mine. So, looking forward to this, and let's take it away. Welcome, Roger. How you doing? Great, man. How are you? Thanks for, uh, thanks for chiming me in. Awesome. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to do this. It's a real thrill for both of us, that's for sure. Wow. Great. Appreciate it. So I wanted to basically start out. I figured we could, you know, we're going to cover like the history of the band, uh, you know, from the time that you were in the band and everything like that. But I wanted to basically start, I was doing a little reading up and uh, on the band. And, and I wanted to ask you, in the early days when you guys first started, um, I had read that you guys opened up uh, three shows for Kiss in 1976. Yeah. You tell yeah, us a little bit about that. Oh yeah. Um, so we're this is a band that really worked, and when we weren't you know playing, when we weren't, we we literally had our own rehearsal room, and we rehearsed six nights a week, and and so when we re rehearsed, we rehearsed the show. So it's like after our, almost a year of that, we were pretty much ready. And oddly enough, the only place we played was a backyard party. And we went from that to opening for Kiss. So it was quite the, yeah, but we, you know, like I said, we were very professional. So we literally had the whole set down and, you know, what we were doing in the set. And so we re- actually rehearsed the show, not just the songs. Okay. Now, was, was I, I read something that was Gene Simmons kind of instrumental in coming to check you guys out or have anything to do with any, you know, getting you guys a contract or anything like that? Oh, close. Uh, Michael Diamond was great at crashing gates. <laughs> so we, one time we went to the forum to see Kiss, and he, Michael actually crashed us in, and we and we crashed their party, and their back after after the show's party. And so we met Gene and Paul, and and uh, just struck up a really good, uh, you know, a really good conversation. And Gene ended up coming out to our rehearsals in in Los Angeles. And that's how we got on the first shows. He actually wanted to manage us. And unfortunately, we, we already got management that we were sorry that we did. That's another story. 
and also Gene wanted us to go with his his booking agency ATI out of New York, but our our management and their infinite wisdom, uh, we went with uh, an, an outfit in Detroit. But we got we got a lot of uh, Ted Nugent dates out of. That's when Ted Nugent was really big. Oh, okay, very interesting. Now, what was I read something about that uh, Kiss wanted to actually record the song Satin Peacock from your debut yeah, album? Yeah, that was another mistake we made. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We should all let him do it. I mean, it would preclude us from doing it on our album. So I'm not quite sure what what the decision was. But Michael and Michael and Michael wrote wrote that song, so they made that decision. I have no idea why. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, the song the the band was always very songwriter influenced. You know what I mean? We we were very active in songwriting and co-writing, and you know, and so like the band was really. We really based on originals, you know. I mean, we weren't interested in doing any covers, although we did cover Teaser on Tommy Bowen, but that was before we had a record deal. Oh, wow. So what I wanted to ask you, Michael, is the band was introduced to me originally when I first found out about them on the first record as the American Deep Purple. Was that a band that you guys delved into or just... Nah. (laughs) <laughs> not really okay. I, I don't think he sounded like deep purple at all but because uh, because i'm from detroit and i think i brought a lot of detroit rock rock bluesy kind of thing to the band and i i think i don't think deep purple was i wouldn't consider them a blues rock band and uh so i think closer because rick sanford could nail anything robert plant ever sang so I think we were probably closer to Led Zeppelin, but you know nobody likes to talk about their influences too much because you know you like to think of yourself as being a some right. type of original player, you know, original songwriter. Well, I always thought of it's interesting you said Robert Plant because I, in my opinion, uh, Sanford was always a combination of Robert Plant and Bon Scott. Yeah, but he was. Rick sang like that way before Bon Scott, though. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't hear any Bon Scott, but definitely, uh, he was definitely, in, admittedly, influenced by Robert Plant. But to be honest with you, uh, Rick Sanford's voice, you know, not to be egotistical, I guess I don't have to be egotistical. I'm not talking about myself. Uh, Rick Sanford had a much better range than Robert Plant, and range of, uh, range of styles too. Rick, right. Rick had. Rick had once again. Rick had some some uh, bluesy kind of stuff going on. You know what I mean? So, and uh, I just think that he was a he, Rick was uh, Rick was my favorite singer. He was the reason why I joined the band. To be honest with you, you know, I, I they they needed a guitar player to do some demos because their guitar player was sick. And I go okay. And so you know, so I learned all these things. We did a bunch of demos. That teaser was one of them. And um, and then they asked me to join the band, and I'm just going, well, I don't know, because I was a lead singer. And I'm just going, you know, And but Rick being that good gave me all the reason to want to join the band. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know, somebody's that much, I would say better than me, but, you know what I'm saying, his voice was just so great. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to pass up. You know, even today I listen to his vocals, and I'm just going, oh, my God. <laughs> that, guy was, that guy was great. You know, so which you did be, have your own basis to be a lead singer because you were a singer in an Asian disco band. It, oh, that, that was just 
<laughs> that was a uh, funny guy. Yeah, that was now, when I first moved out here in uh, California. There was this thing called Musicians Contact Service where you would just go there and you pay fifteen bucks a month, I think, and people would put wanted's in, and you would put you know your availables in there. And and the two things I got was was Legs Diamond, so I started jamming with them right away. This is like uh, November of '75. And uh, and then, but the other thing was an uh, opportunity to sing <laughs> in this band. But they played all the time. They played all these Asian functions. It's very strange. Yeah, I'm singing. I'm singing Stevie Wonder, an average white band, and you know. Oh, that's great. I, w- I wish some of that would show up on YouTube, but I guess. Oh not. God, I, I I hope it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but the funny thing was, is I was still going through my the. Uh, the glam thing from Detroit, you know, the David Bowie and uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. And it was, I don't think I owned a shirt. I think all my, all my shirt in quotations were actually blouses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, one way or the other. Not right. like, I look like a girl, but you know, like Robert Plant, you know, he had those. Oh, absolutely. Things. That was the look back. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so here I am in platform, uh, a, a platform wraparound sandals, so, you know, definitely looked like some chick, <laughs> and uh, and my my feminine uh, uh, tops looking like you know, I should be in David Bowie's band, and I'm in a totally straight laced all Asian disco band, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was just kind of hilarious. Only we had the video. <laughs> oh God! Oh no! <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I got in. I was pretty much. Playing with Legs Diamond within a, a month of getting here, so it was pretty quickly. Another band I, re- I actually auditioned for was uh, the Raspberries. Oh, really? Wow. This, this is when uh, Eric Carmen just left the band, but you know I jammed with them once and it was pretty cool. They're all nice guys, but uh, uh, I was kind of already made a commitment to Legs Diamond and I liked the material better. Interesting. Now, I, I do yeah. have a, a couple of questions that as a life time fan i've always wanted to have answered the first album the the first half of it is in my opinion some of the greatest guitar riffs uh just classic usa hard rock from the latest 70s the second part of the album is more um progressive were you guys and i know it was like kind of the same era was there any influences by Kansas or Angel? Angel? Oh, God, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What anyway, about Kansas? Uh, yeah, all, all of our influences, I could probably speak for the whole band, they were like, you know, you can't name any um, uh, acts that were prevalent of that time because we, we didn't copy off anybody who was actually actively playing the same time we did. Okay. Our influences was, were a lot earlier. Where did, how did the food come into play? Oh, what I, what I wanted to say, you're mentioning the difference between the two albums. And the first album, because I'm, you know, I'm a songwriter, and the first album I did, we had this guy, Derek Lawrence, that did the, the, did the uh, album, and we got to like six or seven songs. He goes, that's it. I'm like, what do you mean, that's it? We got a bunch of more songs. And literally, I did not get any songs on the first album. So if you're talking about influences, I would say if I wrote a song, it would probably 
be a good song for me to play. And uh, the difference between the first album and the second album is songwriting wise, I'm all over the second album. Okay. Well, the se- the second album uh, was a little harder edged, uh, I thought. Would you agree? You know, I I, I I don't like to look at stuff like production value, but I, I like the production of the second album better uh, than the first. The first was like really primal. So it's very, very dry. Some people like that. You know what I mean? That's cool. But uh, I, I, I thought the second album was much better. Well, that, that's going to lead, lead me to a, a question for you from my 21-year-old son, who I recently have turned onto Legs Diamond. Oh, cool. And the first song I, I turned him on to was Stage Fright. And okay. he had a question for me that I had a question over 40 years ago. Why was that odd effect put on Sanford's vocals where he sounded like he was singing like in another part of, of a recording studio, which it wasn't on any of the other the songs on the album? I'm not quite sure what, you know, I'd, I'd have to hear it. Yeah, it was very, it, it was very, um, I'm guessing it was done on purpose, but it, was, it sounded more faint than the, the... His vocals in general? On that song, yeah. It was almost like, in, if you listen to it on headphones, it's almost like in one channel on, on your headphones, where the rest of yeah. the album wasn't done that way. Once again, uh, I do not like the production of that album. <laughs> right. So, but I, yeah. I kind of found it was lacking in places, too, compared to the second record. Yeah, if you want to hear how it should sound... Yeah, I think we re-recorded it, if I'm not mistaken, on the Town Bad Girdle. Yes, album. yeah, pretty pretty much, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the and you'll notice. Uh, uh, I, I'll send you a link to that teaser that we did, that teaser Tommy Bowen song. Um, but uh, you'll notice on the second album, Rick sounds a lot better, and and it's because I, I don't I, I don't think that uh, Derek Lawrence spent any time on Rick's vocal production at all no not on the first record because yeah, the, the guy that very, was i thought thin. the real home, home run was the singer and he was kind of way back in the mix yeah and really not flattering eq at all right because rick you know is, is pretty much a mid-range singer and if that's all you emphasize it's going to sound like he's singing out of a megaphone that's what it sounded exactly right. That's what some of the tracks, not all of them, but some of them sounded like he was singing out of a megaphone. Right. That's just... yeah. We we um we had a major wrestling match with that producer. We did not like him. He was he was drunk all the time. It was but he did Deep Purple at one time. So that's that's that was a big attraction. You know, his his name could help us get attention. You know, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Oddly enough, uh, the, the, from from that first album, we really learned how much we could hate a producer. So we basically we we self-produced most of the rest of the stuff. And uh, Eddie Lee and Eddie was our producer on on the second album, and he was he was he was a producer in the old school terms, you know, helping us with uh, uh, you know tempos and. This should be a, a, a chorus here, you know that kind of stuff. He he was very much into the pre-production, and Derek Lawrence. We never even met him until we went in the studio. Oh, really? Interesting. So yeah, so uh, so Eddie Lee and Eddie pretty much just let us, you know, if, if, if a player sounds good, your whole job is just to make the records sound his 
his guitar or whatever on that record sound just like it did coming out of that amp. Absolutely. You know what I mean? You're not you're not inventing anything. You know, all you're doing is trying to, you know, replicate it so it sounds exactly like it would if you were there. You know, that kind of thing. Right. So basically we we all had pretty good tone, you know, I was the Les Paul, the Marshall thing, and Mike Prince with his Hammond and all that stuff. Michael Diamond had great bass tone. So it was like, you know, all you had to do is, you know, mic it up, <laughs> really. You know what I mean? So it's pretty hard to fuck it up unless you, you know, you can't do it, you can't right. replicate, you know. So, so Eddie Lee and Eddie was great, but I have to mention one guy for that second album, Lee DiCarlo. He's the engineer that Eddie Lee and Eddie brought with him from New York. And he ended up staying out here, by the way. And he was just the best engineer ever. And he knew how to get every single sound. And, you know, he knew all the outboard stuff did. You know, he knew everything. You know what I mean? And he ended up being the chief engineer at the record plant. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I would say Lee DiCarlo doesn't get a whole lot of credit, but he should for that album, the production, definitely. I, I thought the, the the key song on that, that album was Waiting. Waiting? Yeah. Oh, thanks. I wrote that. <laughs> See? I did. <laughs> that that was the, the song that on that album. That, I've had to pick one favorite. It's it, Obviously, everything on it was great. But I I, I kind of wanted to segue into the third album, which which is a, is a favorite of mine. And But with Legs Diamond Aficionados, there's... A little bit of a difference of opinion as to how that album stacked up to the first two, which, you know, are classics of, of their era. If you could tell us a little bit about how that album was recorded, the song selections, the covers that were on there, and the change of label. Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I don't want to talk about it a whole lot, but we had the reason why that we weren't bigger than we were, number one reason is we had the shittiest management in the entire universe. And uh, a Angel had the same management, Quiet Riot, same management. And uh, they ended up pretty much fucking all three of us. Mm -hmm. So what had happened was uh, we were on the road and Mercury Polygram was giving us, I don't know if you should, <laughs> we should talk about this, but Mercury Tele Polygram was giving us road, uh, you know, uh, support on the roads for money, you know, to stay on the road because openers, you know, get much money, right? Mm -hmm. So, so they were, they were giving us a certain amount every week and our management company was literally taking 20% of it. Oh, wow. Like it was, it was, so, but roads, road support is not income. You know what I'm saying? So when Mercury found out about that, they, they didn't renew us for a third album. If had we known, we would have just dumped the managers, <laughs> right? Mm. You know, but and we ended up doing that anyway. So you know, I don't want to talk about negative stuff. Yeah, no, I that that I personally like that album a lot. I I don't think it's quite on par uh, with the first two, but that's you know the first two to me are like monumental well, classics. I could say one thing in um, uh, defense of that album. Uh, we were on a, a label called the Cream Records, and they also owned High Records, and they also had their own publishing company. And they wanted us, you know, to get part of the deal, because they wanted us to cover a certain amount of songs, way too many as far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. And we ended up doing some song called Help Wanted that was actually a hit. 
Yeah. So many mm-hmm. And that was literally a Hudson Brothers song. It That's was right. Almost, almost embarrassing. A funny story about that. We were at, all at the Rainbow with our, you know, we did a debut of our album, doing dinners and all that kind of stuff. And some guy with the beard comes over to our table. This is for the third album. And he goes, Hey, I wrote that song. Like, we go, What? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, Yeah, I'm like Mark Hudson. <laughs> I go, Oh, how cool, man. But he goes, Yeah, thanks for covering it. Sounds great. But anyway, so back to the back to the record label. Yeah, they wanted us to cover some songs on their catalog. We're going, what the fuck, man? We probably had about twenty songs to record, like we right. needed any. You know what I mean? So it was. Uh, so we had to do Help Wanted. We did that. I'm not. And Mike Patton, I think, wrote it. I thought it was a Spooky Tooth song, but more than meets the eye, which I, which I thought was kind of cool. And then you lost that love and feeling, and, and we were recording that at A and M and. Hollow Notes heard us. Next thing we knew, they put it out. And we're going, what the? <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so we, you know, the, I think the covers we did were good, but the point I'm trying to make is if, if the album is a little la- lacking, it's probably because we didn't get our, the rest of our songs on there that could have, you know, one or two songs could have brought the level up a little more. What's going to lead me to the next question is back in the day, I had come across a, demo tape that was out there in the trading circuit in the early 80s, which decades after the fact became something called Uncut Diamond, which I'm... Oh, yeah. Which me and friends of mine who were huge fans way, way back could never figure out how those songs, which were of the quality of the first two records, didn't surface. Could you shed a little light on that? Because to this day, I really don't know what happened with those songs. Well, uh, yeah, I'm glad you like it because I'll tell you one thing: that whole album was recorded live. <laughs> that was just one shot. Really? So, uh, yeah. The only thing that was done later was uh, Rick's vocals. And that was in 1980 that that was recorded. Yeah, and the story behind that was is uh, uh, Spencer Proffer, who owned this company, uh, a studio called Pasha Records. Mm-hmm, sure. Like uh, I think uh, Quiet Riot did a lot of stuff there. Yes, yes. definitely. Anyway. Anyway, him and the producer, excuse me, the engineer, I forget his name, uh, Larry, maybe. I think Larry, yeah. But um, they they let us do a whole album there. He said just, you know, it was supposed to be a demo, you know, to get us a new record deal. You know what I mean? So that's what it was. So that's why we agreed to do it all live and, you know what I mean, not the traditional way. And uh, that's what it sounds like. You know, that's exactly what the band sounded like. You know, so... I, I I thought that album, but it's that's one of my favorites. To be Me too. With you. Me too. I it's, yeah. there's, uh, there's songs on there that are just as as good as the uh, in the quality range of the first two albums. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, the song "Hiding." I, that, that was well, we got the me and my friend. We we got this demo tape. Like probably I would say eighty one, eighty two, and nobody knew who had to, had the songs written on it and it was we were listening to it as like how did this stuff never came and i guess about 20 years later it did actually show up officially released what happened was is our one of our former roadies that guy actually brought out here with me uh he had a cassette tape and mike prince he's like a pro tools genius mike prince took it in the studio and literally made it sound that good from a 30 year old cassette tape Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty cool. Oh, it's got big production. It sound it sounds like something that was actually, you know, put on the shelf, recorded 
on a big budget in the studio. Wow. Yeah. That's quite that's quite a compliment. Yeah, I mean that was it, that, that was in Legs Diamond Circles back in the day. That was like always the holy grail of what were these songs? How did these songs never get released? Why yeah. do we have them on a, you know, a, a shitty cassette and then literally 20 years after the fact they they all appeared on a CD and uh, it was like always like like holy grail Legs Diamond. Wow. Yeah, the, the, like I said the roadie is is Willie Twark. Uh, he's a lighting guy now in Nashville, but um, he found that cassette, and it was just amazing that you know that it was intact. You know what I mean, or not? You know, somehow destroyed. Absolutely. And, and it sounded that good that Mike Prince could actually you know tweak it up a bit, but you know it had to sound good in the first place. Can't make it you know curse out of a sow's ear, whatever they call <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, Sanford, Sanford's <laughs> vocals on that were just so, uh, in, like, peel your face off. He, he's, to me, I think he's probably one of the best lead singers ever. I, yeah, I, not, I agree. Not just because he was in my band, <laughs> but, you know, my favorite singer is Paul Rogers. But I think Rick Sanford in his day was mind-boggling. And he had a great stage presence, too, which is... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, is something that some guys lack, but he he had the whole he had the whole package. Oh yeah, and he never lost that. You know, he got a little older, and his you know he was having problems singing. You know, so a lot of times you got just got to retire. That's pretty much where he's at. Yeah, I mean that that style of singing is is got other than Glenn Hughes, it's had a shelf life for everybody other than Glenn Hughes. <laughs> yeah, the the old you know, Glenn Hughes and Paul Rogers. Paul yeah. Rogers. Paul Rogers sounds better better than he ever has. Yeah. How's that fucking possible? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I went to see Bonamassa a, a few years back, and and Rogers showed up at the. I don't know whether I, I'm, I'm guessing it was planned, but he showed up and he did three or four free songs with Bonamassa, and he was and and I saw Bad Company at Madison Square Garden in seventy six uh-huh. on the second album. All he right. was every bit as good, if not better. Yeah, I saw Free actually, and wow. and uh, definitely saw Bad Company. And I still go see Paul Rogers every time I can. I, I'll probably see him once every couple of years or something like that. And I'm just going, this fucking guy, man. Oh my God. Yeah. You know? I, I always just, say that, you know, like the whole 80s movement, the, you know, the hair bands and, you know, whatever you want to categorize the 80s as me and Mark were both huge fans of the 80s as I was the 70s. Paul Rogers is probably the quintessential singer of, the 80s that, you know, whether it was Ray Gillen or, or whoever you want to mention, he was probably the guy that everybody, most people think it was Plant, but it was really Paul Rogers that everybody yeah. wanted to sound like. Yeah, I, you know, I like Robert Plant, but I think he's really limited when you when, when you compare him to people like yeah. Paul Rogers. I mean, Paul Rogers just got me amazing. And it's like, you know, that, that's the thing that you know, uh, it's really popular now, especially, you know, the R&B thing kind of moved in. It's like you're putting a lot of notes in together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? When you're singing something and yeah. there's actually a step in between those notes. So you're right. not going to, uh, you're going to, you know, I mean, you're doing that and really rapidly. And Paul Rogers has got that down now. Yes. I'm going, oh, my God. What the yeah. fuck? Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't swear, I guess. <laughs> That's okay. So, so uh yeah, so there was a bunch of there's a bunch of songs on that. We, well, it's actually the fourth album that that uncut that I thought were really fun. 
I, you know, and then one song that I thought we almost sounded like yes in it, this song called Winds of Fortune. Yes. Well, I actually was, I boned up on this album again the other day because it had been a lot of years and, and there was some things that were left of center. And that was one of the songs that, that definitely was. Had, yeah. It was like, a, well, even on your first record, you did things that I thought were very progressive in, in the, the realms of Jethro Tull and, and yes, uh, you know, songs definitely. like Rat Racer and Dancer. and It's, uh, oh, you mentioned Hiding on that album? Yes. The interesting thing is Michael, Mike Prince and I wrote that song, right? And so, so that album didn't do anything. Nobody knew where and how it was, blah, blah, blah. And then, so Mike Prince, when they you know, they had the band without me in the eighties, uh, it might've been without Jeff too. I'm not sure, but they did, uh, out on bail, that song out on bail. Yes. Listen to that song and listen to hiding. No, it's, it's, the, the, same, same it's the same song. It's the same song. Yeah. yeah he just, he just took the lyrics out. Right. And, but, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of cool album, excuse cool songs on that album. Oh, there, there really is. And it's, uh, it, it was, it's, it was, when that was released, that was like one of them <laughs> as a fan. I, I couldn't believe that those songs actually were showing up in good, because we had like really grainy, poor quality, you know, third generation tapes of those songs, but you realize uh, the potential of what was there. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> the band that could have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to a, to a large extent. So what I wanted to do was kind of take a, a leapfrog jump to how you got back into the band with Town Bad Girl. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, Mike Prince, you know, I've, I've remained friends with most of the guys in the band through the 80s, uh, even though I wasn't in the band. You know, it was like when I left the band, I left the band in 80, and it's like it wasn't really a hard feelings kind of thing. What it was is, I, you know, the band slowed up considerably, and, you know, I wanted to get back to singing, and so I wanted to do my own band, right, on the side, right? And in those days, bands were like jealous wives. <laughs> you could not be in two bands at once. It right. was just not, not ever heard of. So they pretty much said, you know, you make a choice. And at the time, we weren't doing anything. You know, that we already did that, uh, you know, that the uncut thing, but, you know, was dead as far as we knew. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so we just parted ways. And, and after I left the band, it didn't seem like it was that long before Michael left, and Michael was pretty much the manager of starter of the band kind of thing. So then they were, so that was just Jeff and Rick and Mike, and then and then I guess Jeff left. <laughs> so that's when Dusty Dusty got the Dusty band. Watson so, was the drummer. Yeah, for Dusty a while. Watson, yeah. great drummer. Um, so anyway, so there was a lot of fragmentation in the '80s. So I'm not an expert on it. So that's about all I know is is that part, you know, and, and, you know, I left, you know, I did a bunch of, yeah, my first band was with Bobby Blotzer. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, I just went on the, you know, doing my own thing for much, most of the 80s, but then, you know, my friends and I were, were friends, and we go, hey, you know, we should just, just put the band back together. <laughs> he goes, yeah, that's fucking cool, you know what I mean? And uh, so basically, you know, we we just, they we used the band that they had the last time it was a few years ago. So they had Dusty Watson was in band and Mike Christie was on the bass. Right. And you know, I didn't know either one of those guys. 
So, you know, we started jamming and it's fucking sounding great. And um, Mike Christie was a lot closer to the way Michael Diamond plays, you know, with the pick and the treble and all that stuff. So, um, so anyway, yeah, so we're jamming and jamming and writing new songs, you know, getting onto it. And then I had a friend of mine who was kind of a manager. He owned a clothing store on Melrose and he managed, um, uh, what's Tracy Guns? LA Guns. LA Guns. Right? Pretty much got them going and they dumped them. <laughs> and then he did the same thing for us, unfortunately. His name was Alan Jones. So anyway, he introduced me to Brian Flagel and Brian Slagle owns Metal Blade Records. Sure. So he turned out to be a fan, and I go, all right, that sounds great to me. And so, uh, yeah, so he came out to rehearsal, heard some, you know, heard some of the originals, and they signed us, you know. So, and then I got a, you know, a nice, pretty cool uh, publishing deal, too. And that's but anyway, what became uh, Town Bad Girl in 1990, right? Town Bad Girl, yeah. So it's like basically... Kind of the last band before they, there was nothing going on, and it was like so it was Dusty, Mike Christie, Mike Prince, Rick Sanford, and me. So you guys kind of had it fit snugly in the hair band era. That I remember when the album came out, it was kind of marketed as it was weird because I remember it was a, it was a band I was into for a long time, and when it came out, it was kind of marketed at least in record stores in, in New York as. It's kind of more like a newer, like a band, like a, a new hair band. It wasn't really looked at as a, as a vintage band from the seventies. And I, I uh, it, it sounded like like Legs Diamond, but it also it sounded of kind of like the bands of, of that time. Also, was that on purpose? Um, I just think it's you know progression, right? You know, what I mean? it's like especially when the the band really hasn't played in a long time, especially me and Mike Prince together. And, you know what I mean? So it was just a matter of what we were influenced, also what we were influenced at that time, but what other people were doing. But we were never, a, you know, a hair band. Uh, I did go through periods with my own thing with big hair, but it was mostly, it was mostly like a pop, heavy pop thing. Not, and not uh, not the glam metal or nothing like that. But I can send you a picture of my big hair. You'll be laughing your ass off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, like, we, yeah, basically my hair was getting down to normal, <laughs> it, it, that Legs Diamond band. And it was like, a, you know, it was maybe a little glossier than, than usual, that album. That's what like, I thought, too. That's, that's the perfect word, glossier. Because it, it, was, it was weird, because when that record came out, uh, a close friend of mine, and I, we were into you guys from almost the beginning. And when it came out, we, we liked the record, but I, I remember at the time it was kind of, there were a lot of, you know, years had gone by and there were a lot of people that weren't familiar with who you guys were. And, and it was kind of like, well, there's this band, you know. And it's it was, it, it kind of fitted to the category of, you know, a, more of a newer band than a vintage uh -huh. band, which disappointed me, but only, I guess, the passage of time from, you know, the late 70s to 1990. Did that yeah. affect how you guys went over in terms of drawing capacity and sales, sales or record sales? Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand your question. Did the, the passage of time with the same band name uh, affect what you your anticipation was in terms of Drawing capacity, record sales capacity. Did it meet your expectations? Did it? Um, 
Well, never met my expectations. Otherwise, you know, I'd be in a big house in Beverly Hills and planning my tour. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, so yeah, it, that, you know, was, there was a little bit of success there. And, and, uh, once again, I was out of the band again, <laughs> right, you know, right after it, right when nothing was happening, you know what I mean? I'm just going, well, time to get back to work. Cause out of, out of most of the, out of all the band members, really, I'm the guy that, you know, never has stopped working in a band playing since I was 15. I even, I even, I even had a band when I was in the Air Force. So I'm really active. I'm going to be, I'm going to be 71 next week. And, I, and I'm playing a gig on that Saturday. Nice. So, well, I, I saw your most recent post of when you played a couple of weeks ago. I had dinner with my friend Mark tonight. And I was saying, I said, you know, Roger could still play. He's, he's still got chops. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's like we're just doing like a cover thing, but I got I got a bunch of originals, and I'm trying to get this newer band here to be doing a couple originals now, and it's just a matter of time before we start recording. Nice. I got a recording I got a recording studio in my house. So. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, and then Mike Prince lives five minutes away, so this Lakes Diamond thing once the wheels start rolling a little faster, it's, it it happens pretty quickly. Yeah, that would be really, I, I mean, I, I personally would love to see whatever you guys have in the can that, that's out there to, to finally. Yeah. I haven't heard the new singer. Is 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 he a fit in, in terms of Rick? Or? He's, uh, we, we have a live tape with him when we, uh, when we recorded, uh, when we played San Antonio a couple years ago. It's what, a full show. What is, what is his name? Keith England. Okay. And you said yeah, he joined in 2018. Yeah. He's a friend of mine from doing jams around town. And uh, you were mentioning Bon Scott. Keith Keith kind of sounds like a cross between Rick Sanford and Bon Scott. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so I wasn't that far off the mark. <laughs> you you so, ended, ended up 40 years after the fact circling back to a Bon Scott singer. You had a premonition. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I, bon, when you say Bon Scott, I know he was popular. But I think Bon Scott got his voice from uh, Alex... Uh, um, Alex Harvey. Oh, okay. oh, the Alex Harvey band, yeah. Yes, have you ever heard the, their stuff? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he, well, he was on look before Bon, and, and oh, you got you want to laugh, look up Bon Scott when he was playing in, like, sing, singing in dance bands. He's like, I got, like, it's like they're like the, uh, it's like four, two or three male lead singers, and they're all dancing, they all have those same outfits on and stuff, it's, it's hilarious. Because you think of him as being a badass, and nobody <laughs> wants to see I, this. I, I never knew that. It's terrible. <laughs> it's like me in that disco band, right? <laughs> Pretty funny. So I, I, I just had a couple of questions about the wish. Now, obviously, I know you weren't in it. I'm not going to go into great detail. What, uh -huh. what transpired that you were, were back in and and then left to to the recording of that record? Um, I left be before, I left before, way before that. I left pretty much right after Town Bad Girl. Okay. When stuff was, wasn't happening. So it was like 91 or something like that. And, uh, the guitar player that they used, uh, Jeff, and they just decided to do another album. And I think Mike Prince pretty much wrote most of it. Okay. And, uh, I to be honest with you, I've never heard it. We've had, we've played one song off of there. I think that song was actually called The Wish. And that's the only that's the only song I ever heard. But to get back to Town Bad Girl, and you're talking about you know uh, not sounding so much like the old band, it's like 
you know, we there was so much time in between that we didn't, we it never occurred to us to try to sound like we used to. You know, we we were gonna do, you know, in shows where we we're gonna do old songs, but you know, the new album, it didn't really occur to us to try to sound like that. And that's just Tom Bad Girls, just pretty much what came out. Yeah, I think what it what it I mean, at least myself, what I what I loved about the, there were there were three things that I loved about the original band: your guitar riffs that were epic, the Hammond oh, organ of, of Prince, which really didn't see too much of an American bands. It was used by a lot of the British bands a little bit before you guys, like Uriah Heep and Purple, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tull used it a lot, but. Um, and obviously, San, Sanford's vocals, and and I just felt with that record, it was good. It was it was a it was a very good record from beginning to end. There were no bad songs on it. And which which album? Uh, Town Bad Girl. Okay. It just didn't accentuate enough of that pompous uh, keyboards and the over the top vocals, and you know, I think it was just kind of a little bit homogenized for that nineteen ninety hair band, which at that uh, time that that. That style of of band was it was, it was popular. <laughs> yes, it was. It was actually became popular to the point of being the detriment to, to the music. Oh, okay, you know, yeah. it, it was just so much of it, and uh, I, I thought that record unfortunately got lost in the shuffle. You know, and again, I always feel like it wasn't. It, it, it I think there were too many people that didn't realize who you guys were, didn't know the history of the band. Uh-huh. And even the the cover of it, I wasn't wild about because I thought the first uh-huh. three records had such great artwork, uh-huh. and you know this had the typical you know chick you know half naked crawling around. I love that cover. You do love that cover. See, I like I, it too. Yeah, I, I I wanted I wanted uh, I wanted something in vain of the first three records, but I guess I was even in 1990. I was living in the past. It was a sign of the times. It, it was a sign yeah. of the times. It, well, it was well, a twenty kitten type of cover. I was really upset about that first cover because we we okayed the idea, but when we got the artwork, I was pissed off because I'm a I'm a guitar snob and the guitar. That they used for that picture. Oh, it was, was a, a hollow body, yeah. It was, it was a harmony. It was like this little cheap hundred dollar guitar from right. the sixties. And I'm going, oh. No. Well, I always thought that was strange too, because I, I so know you didn't play that guitar in any of those no. songs. So I didn't know why, oh, but it was oh, still no. a cool cover for the era. You know, it was very colorful. Oh yeah, like and, the bullet holes in the back and stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We had a lot of violent images that wouldn't go over too good these days. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. We, Rick used to come out with a starter pistol. Shoot at the audience. That, yeah, that that yeah, that would not go over that well today. <laughs> the, whole, the whole gangster thing, you know, and then firepower with a gun. Yep, sure. That I love that cover too. And uh, you know, the second one with a big fist coming at you. <laughs> uh, the second one. That's that to me was the quintessential Legs Diamond yeah. cover. The second yeah. album. That was that, that, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Michael Diamond's idea. Yeah, that that cover was was absolutely killer. Speaking was, of Michael Diamond. What happened to him? I mean, it was three albums and gone. What What was the story after that? Well, it, it, he seems like he kind of left after I did. Uh, so I don't really know the story of the 80s and Michael and how he left, but I know it wasn't amicable because he's still kind of pissed off. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, it's like, you know, I was telling you, I'm still friends with the bands, even if I'm in and out, whatever. 
it was like one of my first bands when I first left like Diamond. Jeff Poole and Mike Prince played at it. <laughs> so oh, wow. exactly you talk about hard feelings that the guys are, you know, supporting your your solo act, you know what I'm saying? And then and then in the eighties, Michael Diamond and I were in two bands together, almost three really. And one of them could have done something. The, the drummer was Matt Sorum. I don't know if you know who that is. Sure. But, yeah, from the cult. Uh, yeah. And Guns N' Roses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A great fucking drummer. But, you know, it's that whole thing. You know, you're just... The business is is the hard part. The music stuff, if you're talented, the music stuff is, is the easy part. It's the business that's the hard part. It's like 90%. Sure. And that's, and that's what, you know, the... I, I think we put out good material... But it was it was mismanagement or no management. It was the reason why nothing happened. That's that just goes to show you how important management is. So this is going to take me to uh, an album that I had a lot of questions on. I'm going to try to shorten them, and I, I just wanted to know how you got back with the band and how you recruited John Levesque, and what oh, okay. your opinions are on that album. And I could share some of my opinions on that album with you. I I love that album. Me too. <laughs> If I may say so, and and I'm kind of happy, even though they're not the popular songs on the album. I'm glad I got some really heavy ass uh, guitar stuff in there. It's a little out of the ordinary for Lex Diamond, maybe selfish of me, but you know that that song like Trouble. Trouble is uh, great. Rain. Yeah. My favorite song of the album is Rain. And uh, that's another kind of heavy song that I didn't think I'd get over. You know, I wrote that one. I think my friends helped me. And in trouble, and that was me. Me and Mike Prince wrote that one. I think Mike Prince wrote everything. <laughs> I say it. So um, yeah. So I, I I like the heavy stuff on there, but I think you know we sort of satisfied with the anthem like stuff or anthem like or like what do you what do you want to say? You know, not sad songs, but you know, kind of epic songs. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Got a few of those on there. Now that came out in two thousand and five. That's Diamonds Are Forever. When uh, when did you guys start writing for that? Oh, about a year before, you know, a year before, you know, okay. yeah, and uh, you know, Mike Prince and I were, were you know, we're always writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I am. You know, you know, I just wrote a song, you know, like last week. Okay. You know what I mean, so it's kind of like, um, you know, we're always doing it anyway. You know, that kind of thing. So it's like, well, it's when it's time to to do something, we already got a kind of a head start. Mm-hmm. How did you re- recruit uh, John Levesque? Because he's a guy that I was personally very familiar with. He was in a band called Shout. And okay. he was in a band called Wild Horses. That was Wild on Horses. a major yeah. label. Yeah, I was in another friend of mine was in that band, Jeff Pilson. Ah, right. Yeah, James um, Kotak played in that band, too. Right, Kotak was in that band also, yeah. Yeah, it's a good band. You know, one of those things, oh, it sounds great. What happened to him? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you know, so... So we had headlined a show at San, in San Antonio, of course, uh, at Sunken Gardens. And, uh, and the cool thing about it was it was all guitar player. It's like the, the opening act work. And it was like Uli had his band, and then Michael Schenker had his band. Wow. And, and St- Stars played. That was, you know, because we liked those guys. And, uh, and, and then Ronnie Mantra, right? So, so basically... You know, we're, we, all these bands are playing and we, I'm checking out Ronnie Montrose and the singer. Oh, wow, the singer's pretty good. You know, and so anyway, so, you know, the show's over, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, Mike and I are talking about 
you know, uh, later on, Mike and I were talking about, uh, you know, putting the band back together and getting another singer because Rick moved to San Antonio. And so, you know, um, so we're looking around for singers and this, this uh, death metal band that I was producing in my studio, uh, I had a friend of mine and, and, and I was talking to him and said, we're looking for a lead singer, blah, blah, blah. And he was working at some telemarketing things, you know, selling toner and all that, you know, that <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so he goes, I know this guy, this, it would be perfect. And I go, oh, no, who's that? He goes, a guy named John Levesque. He works here. <laughs> so I'm telling her. <laughs> and so, uh, so he hooks me up with John Levesque. And I, I'm just going, dude, you look familiar, man. He goes, he goes, well, I sang in Montrose. I go, oh, man, we got video of this guy. So I call up Mike Prince. And he the, he had video of, of the show. And I'm over at Mike's house. And we're, we're on his piano when Johnny's singing. And we're going to all the notes that he's hitting, right? And we we just got to a certain point up high on the keyboard. We just looked at each, at each other, going, "We got to get this guy." <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So he, you know, he was. I thought he was a great singer, but once again, you talk about Tom Madrill not sounding like the old stuff. I don't think Johnny sounded like Rick at all. No, he didn't. He did. Yeah. So to me, that was like a just a another album that we did that doesn't necessarily. It's not like bookends with the other ones. Actually, I think what carried that album was the strength of the songwriting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's just me and Mike. Oh, and then we put a we put a Wild Horses song on there, I think, for so Johnny would feel okay. You know. Yeah, well, there were actually two Wild Horses records. There was a second one that was in the can for a long time that that subsequently was put out, and then there was the first one that was on the major label that that was was pushed pretty big, but. It, I think it was kind of like 91-ish when, when everything was starting to change a little bit. But John Levesque, I thought, was uh, one of the better vocal talents out there that didn't really make it on oh, yeah. scale. Oh, yeah. I thought his voice was great. I yeah. just didn't think it sounded like Rick Samper. You know, no, he didn't. All. He didn't. So, but yeah. I didn't know whether you guys were necessarily going for that or not. He just seemed like a fit. Well, there was two songs. I, I'm trying to think of the name of the two that that we did, and I was there. I wasn't there with those other vocals. When the two that I was there, I was kind of trying to make them sound like more like Rick. Mm-hmm. And I think those two did. I'm trying to think of the names of the songs, but uh, uh, those two songs, he actually sounded like Rick. Uh, but, you know, his voice doesn't naturally sound like it. So Maybe a little bit on the song Loneliness. Was that? On the song "Loneliness," I thought. He yeah, was... I think that's. I think that's one of the ones that that I was there, kind of directing him. It was "Loneliness" and one other one. But yeah, you're right, "Loneliness." I, I think he sounds the closest to Rick Sanford on that song. Yeah, it was a great record. It, it, it as I said to you, I think before we even went on the record with this this interview, uh, what I loved about that record is it just got better and better. I thought some of the best songs, which you hardly ever see in the history of rock albums you never see great songs on the on the tail end of a record and that record had some of the best songs on the second half of it yeah loneliness was actually the last one before that before that wild horses song yeah exactly so it was yeah i i was hoping for like a build-up with that lineup because i even though he wasn't a sanford clone i i liked him from the previous bands he was in and i i liked that record so much i thought there would be more what what 
led to the fact that there wasn't more. Was it was it more? Yeah. No management. <laughs> That's a story. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, we're faced to do everything our, ourselves. And if I was a good manager, like I said, I'd be talking to you from Beverly Hills right now. So it's it's all about business, you know what I mean? It's just like you doesn't matter doesn't matter if you're talented uh, if if you can't no, nobody knows about you. Yeah, what what label were you guys on at the time? I'm I'm trying to remember. Which which one? On uh, on the last one with uh, Levesque. Who were you signed to? Uh, kind of nobody. I think yeah. we ended up get we got ended up getting a deal. It was more of a production production deal with a. German company. I'm trying to think of the name of AOR. Was it Zoom Club? AOR. I have it. That's that's. AOR haven't put that out. I thought it might have been Zoom Club. Uh, the Zoom Club was later on. I think. Okay. I, I think the, the was. Would you say Music for Nations? What's it called? AOR Heaven. AOR Heaven. Yeah. They uh, they pretty much it was like a European thing, and they actually brought us over to England and Germany to play. So that was cool. Yeah. Now that was what a a Firefest show. Yeah, Firefest show. That some one 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 was in like Manchester, and the other one is uh, was in a town by Stuttgart, Stuttgart. Oh. And there were two different inside, so they were pretty cool. They were trying to, you know, do some stuff with us. But the problem is we didn't we didn't have anybody to do airplay stuff. You know what I mean? So you know we could we could get on some concerts, but if nobody never heard of us again, and we'll never again. Uh, you know, it's difficult to do business. Sure. Now, that was the first time uh, Lakes Diamond had played in Europe? Yeah. Well, first time I played with them. Okay. I think they, they I think they went over to England uh, right after I left in Town Bad Girl. That's with Jeff Marcus. Okay. Yeah. I was pretty bummed about that. But had I known, I would have stuck around a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, but like these days, you know, I'm in like three, four bands. You know what I mean? So... You gotta, especially when you people get older, they get less motivated. So I'm like motivated 110. percent So I I need to have more than one outlet. Right. So I got one question uh, before we let you go and don't take up your whole night. There's some rumors that there's a Lex Diamond book in the works. Is there any truth to that? Not that I know. Oh, I thought I saw something on the website that yeah. talked about a book being uh, worked on. Yeah, we did see something about that. I, I didn't know anything specific about it, but it was just curious. Oh, oh, oh yeah, you're talking about, oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of his name. I thought he already put it out for some reason. I'm trying to think of it on the website now, trying to look it up, sorry. Martin Popoff, maybe? Yeah, Martin Popoff, yeah. Oh, I'm pretty okay. sure, he, didn't he put something together already? Hmm, not that I'm aware of, but that could be possible, sure. Yeah, I'm just not quite sure. Okay, I'll yeah. look into that. Now, well, that's interesting, because I... <laughs> I saw, I saw a discography on you guys that he guest hosted on, and he wasn't even familiar with half the records that were put out. But it'd be interesting that he wrote a book on it. But uh, I didn't know he was. Yeah, on. I mean, I could see one of the band members writing a book, but uh, yeah, I, it was the fact. I I commented to uh, my friend Mark and quite a few of my other friends. I saw a, a discography thing that somebody did on YouTube. I won't mention the guy's name, and he was a special guest. And they left them off like three quarters of the records because neither neither one of the guys that did the interview or the discography were familiar with the record. So it'd be quite interesting that he wrote a book well, about you guys. But I guess I should have wrote a, I should have wrote a book about you guys. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there you go. You still can. 
I, That's right. I still might. <laughs> I, I should do it. Well, yeah. yeah, obviously. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I, I've always felt like through the years, it's always been you and, and Michael Prince, uh, like the brain, the brain trust of the band. Yeah, I, I can't forget Michael Diamond though. Well, I don't know what for what reason he left in the '80s, but uh, I'm not quite sure why he left. But he and I were friends after that. We actually shared a. Uh, a duplex for a while too, and so and he's still my friend, but he he doesn't get the credit because he's he's pretty much he was like the total brain trust of the band in the well, in the seventies. He was he was pretty much the in house manager kind of a deal. How did the name come about? Because I know that's not his real last name. How did you guys arrive on the Legs Diamond name? Well, Legs Diamond, uh, Jeff Poole did an interview in, in a Rock Candy magazine. He talked extensively of, you know, the, Michael and him using the name up in San Francisco, which wasn't actually Legs Diamond Band, but, that, you know, basically it was named after the gangster. You know, so they brought the name with them and, uh, you know, they moved to uh, Hollywood, got rid of everybody in the band except them. Then they started to add another member. So it was, I think they found Rick, then they found Mike and, uh, and Michael and, uh, and then they found a guy named Smokey. He didn't work out for the guitar. And they found a guy named, uh, uh, what the hell's his name? Well, the guy before me, uh, he, he had some kind of a disease. He couldn't play for a minute. But oddly enough, a couple months after he left the band, he was fronting his own band. <laughs> so I'm just going, I don't know how sick this guy is. But anyway, uh, yeah, they need somebody to do the demos. And I, I did de the demos with him. That's why I was telling you earlier about, you know, they asked me to be in the band. And I joined the band just based on Rick's voice. Well, I really feel at this point I could go on and on and ask you a, a million inane questions, but I don't want to do that. So, all right. Well, uh, more Facebook friends, you can uh, you can chime in, you can PM uh, me anytime, and I will. It was great, I Roger. Think, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to both of us today. It's really it was really a great trip down memory lane. Yeah. So it was fun taking a skip down memory lane. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, totally appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Thank you. I appreciate and, it. And I'll be checking in with you, Roger, with you, with your own band and, and hopefully New Legs Diamond material, which your cult fan base would love. Oh, here's, a, here's something interesting. Jeff Poole actually wrote lyrics this time, and he and I might have a, a, two songs on the new album. Oh, nice. I'm looking forward to that. Very much so. The one's about his... Uh, daughter was unfortunately killed in that Las Vegas shooting thing. Oh, wow. I remember seeing something about that, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Anyway, sorry to leave on a bad note, but uh, yeah, so great. And uh, I sent you the link to that, that live thing from San Antonio a couple, couple of years ago so you can get a, see what our new singer sounds like. Great. I, I appreciate that. All right, cool. Thanks, great. guys. Thank you very All much. All right, Roger. take care, Roger.